Do you wake from your finest fantasy? Only to return to your daily nightmare. Is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams... I love you. In my dreams, I love you. ...still have a few doubts? Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased. You can make it right this way. It's about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. We're all in this together. Terrorist bombing. I don't think it involves anything unsavory. Hey, trust me, Jack. And late night shopping. <laughs> True love. You don't trust me? Trust you? Trust you? The man who hijacks my truck, loses me my job, has every security man in town looking for me? Of course I trust you. I'm going to try to help. Yeah. And creative plumbing. There's your problem. Can you fix it? No, I can't. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits, Jonathan Price. Sam. What are we going to do with you? Robert De Niro. I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Catherine Hellman and Michael Palin. We've always been close, haven't we? Yes, Jack. Until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil, it's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid. Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into Film, Literature, and the New World Order, that monthly podcast series where we examine different pieces of cinema and literature for their underlying meaning and messages, or at least usually a monthly series. As you may or may not have noticed, there was no edition of this podcast last month, as I was busy working on episode 305 of the Corbett Report podcast proper, The Secret Life of Timothy McVeigh, and I hope, I trust, that those of you who have listened to or seen that podcast will understand that I was exceptionally busy spending a month putting that podcast together, trying to coalesce several years of research into one hour, and was absolutely overwhelmed with work, uh, too much so to do this podcast. But here we are, it's the, now the third Monday of May, and we're back on track with FLNWO. And as announced last month, of course, we are listening to a podcast about Brazil, the 1985 flick directed by Terry Gilliam, perhaps better known as the animator behind Monty Python's bizarre twisted, outrageously funny animated intermissions, and if you are unfamiliar with his work in that regard, well, get a sense of humor and <laughs> take a look at Monty Python. But today we are looking at Brazil, and if you think that this 1985 film's idea or vision of a stilted, bleak, mechanical, bureaucratic, centrally organized, rigidly controlled society in which terrorism is the ever-present boogeyman threat and the militarized, policed crackdown on that ter terrorism is an even bigger threat, if that sounds oddly prescient of the world we are currently living in, then you're certainly not the only one who feels that way. Raise field in wine sauce. 
One moment I thought we were involved in a very sick joke because <laughs> there's a film that takes place at Christmas time all about bombs going off in shopping centers. And then at Christmas time, Herod blows up and they were back in business. Just like that. Yes, the scene in which the wealthy elite are dining while bombs are going off all around them is obviously a memorable one, but as Terry Gilliam alludes to in that short clip of a documentary about the production of the film, yes, indeed, in 1983, during the production of the film, uh, bombings did take, or a bombing did take place at Harrods, specifically on December 17th, 1983, of course, the uh, the, the landmark, trademark uh, London department store. And the store was reopened just three days later as a sign that they would not be defeated by acts of terrorism. Of course, uh, the provisional IRA taking uh, the blame for the bombing, uh, not w- without having suffered a million pounds of losses in uh, sales, apparently, as uh, Her- Herod's chairman, Alec Craddock, dourfully noted at the time. But uh, yes, so although this did uh, start out as farce, it was quickly surpassed by reality, as tends to occur for those who are attacked attempting to satirize and try to take to its logical conclusion some of these ideas of what would happen if this happened. Unfortunately, as we've seen in recent years, well, reality has been catching up with films like Brazil. Try as they might to satirize, make fun of, and make ridiculous these types of moves towards a bureaucratic police state and uh, the the ever-present boogeyman of terrorism in the background. Unfortunately, reality has a funny way of catching up. So, um, yes, this is definitely one of those scenes in which we can see a little bit of reality uh, in behind the farce, but it's certainly not the only one. And in fact, perhaps even a better indicator of that reality-surpassing satire than the Herod's bombing is, of course, the response that President Bush so sagely advised Americans to to give to 9-11 shortly after that event occurred. As we work with Congress in the coming year to chart a new course in Iraq and strengthen our military to meet the challenges of the 21st century, we must also work together to achieve important goals for the American people here at home. This work begins with keeping our economy growing. And I encourage you all to go shopping more. Or how about the wacky satirization of bureaucracy in Brazil, where a man is arrested, incarcerated, and accidentally killed over a misprint on a typewriter? Surely that is just satiric license, right? That doesn't happen in reality. Six-year-old Alyssa Thomas is like any little girl. Ta-da! She loves her dolls, (laughs) and she's already excited about the first grade. But according to the U.S. government... You should be worried about what she's up to. I'm putting a clip in her hair. We were like puzzled. I'm like, well, you know, she's kind of six years old. This, this is not something that should be typical. But I'm like, 
Well, okay. Dr. Santosh Thomas was just made aware that his oldest daughter is on the list, the terror watch list that impacts travelers who could be a threat to national security. Alyssa's parents found out at the Continental check-in counter during a recent trip from Cleveland to Minneapolis. They said, well, she's on a list. We're like, okay, what's the story? What do we have to do to get off the list? That's not exactly the list we want to be on. Now we know there's a list. In fact, the government confirms that one exists. But the FBI won't say anything about who's on it, how many people are on it, or why. The family of four was allowed to make the trip, but they were told to contact Homeland Security. This letter is the response to six-year-old Alyssa. And the bottom line, the government won't confirm nor deny any information they have about her or someone else with the same name. She's been flying since she was two months old. So that has not been an issue. In fact, we had traveled to Mexico in February, and there were no issues at that time. According to the TSA, Alyssa never had problems before because the secure flight program just began in June for all domestic flights. A spokesperson will only say, quote, the watch lists are an important layer of security to prevent individuals with known or suspected ties to terrorism from flying. Alyssa has other priorities right now. My Barbie. My magic and jumping in my bed. Her name will likely stay on the list. And as for the next time she flies, the FBI says they'll rely on the common sense of the security agents. Okay, well, how about when Jill questions Sam as to whether he's ever actually seen one of these terrorists that they're constantly talking about on the news and that seem to be behind all of these bombings? The implication of that question, and you can read it in Sam's face in that scene, is that these bombings, or these terrorists at any rate, may not be real at all. And that is an interesting little possibility, but... Surely, again, that is just satire. That's the kind of 1984, the government may be the ones raining down the missiles on the population just to keep them in line. Again, that doesn't happen in reality, does it? We begin with some new and chilling details about a terror plot. A group of young Muslim immigrants hatched the terrorist plot at a local mosque. Ringleaders of a homegrown terror cell were arrested as they tried to buy AK-47 and M-16 assault weapons. Since the September 11th attacks, there have been over 500 people prosecuted for terrorism-related offenses. And this is a number that sounds really big, and it makes it sound like Americans are being kept safe from terrorism attacks. But we found that in a lot of these cases, people were prosecuted who never would have committed a terrorist act in the first place if it weren't for the involvement of the FBI. While Dowd is charged with attempting to use a weapon of mass destruction, it was a plot largely engineered by the FBI, during which the teenager is accused of taking the bait. Yes, sadly, this film really does look like a satirization of 2015 as much as, or maybe even more than, it must have looked like a satirization of 1985 to its original audience. And perhaps that was intentional. Uh, during a chat about this film at the British Film Institute last year, Gilliam did intimate that while the movie is often categorized as science fiction, it was intended more as a documentary. But uh, no, I, I never thought, it's, I find it very odd that people think that this is in the sci -fiction, uh, science fiction section because I don't think it's science fiction at the time. It was more of a documentary as far as I was concerned about <laughs> the world that I had seen we were living in. Uh, I mean, actually, the last time was, not the last time, but uh, a couple years ago when I was promoting a film in the States, uh, when George Bush was still president, I said I was uh, going to 
sue him and Dick Cheney for the illegal and unauthorized remake of Brazil. Uh, <laughs> Homeland Security is the Ministry of Information, and if you can't find terrorists, you invent terrorists. If you listen into enough people's conversation, you'll probably find somebody who had a terroristic thought in their head for a moment. Well, all right, categorizing Brazil as a documentary, well, that might be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He might have been a bit facetious when talking about that possibility, but I think, nonetheless, that is the kernel of the idea that I want to take a look at today, specifically questioning what genre or what identity would you put this film into? Because I think answering that question, if we could really fundamentally answer it, we could answer one of the fundamental questions that I have had and continue to have about the entire idea of predictive programming, which we obviously are looking at month after month in various permutations on this podcast. It's all well and good to take a look at all of the different features of this Brazil 1985 world uh, and to examine how they relate to our current society and the war on terror, the global phony war on terror that will never end. But I'm sure my regular listeners are certainly well-equipped to be able to do that for themselves. Today, I want to take a look at this question of what is Brazil? What is this movie? And how does it function on the viewer? Uh, is it satire? Is it, is it commentary? It, and if so, what, what state does that leave us in? Where does that leave us? And that question, what is Brazil, is, well, coincidentally and conveniently enough, the central question of that half-hour making-of documentary that I cited earlier and that we listened to a short clip of earlier in this podcast. And that's where we'll pick things up with some of the cast, crew, and characters attempting to answer this question of what is Brazil? What is Brazil? Mm. What is Brazil? What is Brazil? <laughs> that's a very difficult one to answer. It's half a dream and half a nightmare. I mean, normally you have reality and dreams, but in this, you have dreams and nightmares. I guess you could say it's a, a farce and a romance, and it is a comment on society to come, the future of the world. Brazil is uh, a dream, and it's uh, a fantasy, and it's uh, a comedy, but, I mean, to me, it's also, it's rather a chilling reality. Picture me in these... There's something bizarre and extraordinary. It's escape into the world of imagination and dreams. It's a bit like a sort of film for teaching you how to cross the road, and it's all about minding where you're going. I want to report a wrongful arrest. Have you got an arrest receipt? Yeah. It's the depths of the psyche. It's the unconscious uglies. It's the, uh, it's the things you run away from. It's the things you don't want to see. It's a very funny piece, but there's a kind of sinister threat in it. I think it tells us about, um, about relationships between people in a world that has lost its humanity. It's the myth of the free man in an unfree society. 
farce, romance, commentary, dream, reality. It's about minding where you're going. It's the depths of the psyche. It's the things you don't want to see. Lots of different and interesting answers to this question of what this movie is and what it's about. But perhaps the most interesting comes from Tom Stoppard, the movie's co-writer, who said it's about the myth of a free man in an unfree world. A very interesting formulation. And Tom Stoppard is interesting in and of himself, if for nothing other than his biographical details. For those who don't know, Tom Stoppard was not only the co-writer of this film, the first co-writer approached by Terry Gilliam, who wrote an early draft of the script for this movie, and then the draft was completed by another co-writer. But uh, but Tom Stoppard is interesting if you look into his biography, born in what was then Czechoslovakia in 1937 and fleeing uh, with his family uh, from the Nazis in 1939. He fled to Singapore and then very quickly had to flee Singapore uh, to escape the Japanese invasion in which his father was killed. Uh, ended up in India for a little while and then coming back to England uh, after his mother married a major in the British Army. So a very, uh, as it's often written in the uh, in the critical literature about Tom Stoppard, a peripatetic biography. And it, uh, I think, informs some of his most well-known writing. Of course, uh, people might be familiar with Tom Stoppard's plays, which he's most well-known for, including Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead and Travesties and Jumpers and The Real Thing and Arcadia and a number of other plays. Um, and... And interestingly, in the 1970s, he started to focus more on human rights concerns and came up with uh, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor and uh, Professional Foul and and other uh, works that reflected more of this Human Rights Association, which is interesting because that is, I think, the work for which ultimately Stoppard ended up receiving his knighthood. He was knighted by the Queen in, 19, in the late 1990s. He's now Sir Tom Stoppard, to be precise, if one prefers to genuflect to such ridiculous titles. And I think that's reflective of the fact that he was in the 1970s and 80s when he was writing about these human rights concerns about the way that the Soviets were treating their political prisoners, etc. That, of course, was quite amenable to the British establishment of the time. But when that... When that distaste for violations of human freedom is transposed into, well, not just some, you know, not the Soviets, not them over there, but our society as well, well, that makes it more uncomfortable. And this is one example of that, where Stoppard's critique did not stop at the doorstep of Britain or, or, of, or of the Western uh, countries generally. In fact, it, it came right into the heart of it with 1985's Brazil, which obviously... No, I, I want to say borrows from, reflects, uh, echoes uh, 1984, Orwell's uh, 1984, in a number of ways, some of which quite obvious, some of which quite subtle but interesting. Uh, for example, I did notice in one scene, you can see behind uh, Sam a, a poster that is a basically a, a poster saying, mind that parcel and, you know, basically look out for terrorist bombs. And uh, it's, it's a, a graphic of a couple of people underneath an all-seeing eye, which is looking down on both of them. Obviously quite heavily depictive of a 1984-type Big Brother society, but it's interesting also how that poster is then reflected in real life years later for those who have seen all safe under the under the watchful eyes or, or whatever that that bus campaign in the UK was a, a while ago with the all-seeing eyes looking down on the London buses I mean 
again, reality does tend to outstrip the satire. But I think it's interesting, Tom Stoppard's idea, that this is about the myth of a free man in an unfree world, because certainly Sam Lowry in this movie is very much an... Well, as someone who desires freedom, who dreams about freedom, that's really the central motif of this entire story. His his dream life, his dream world of being with his dream woman and flying above the clouds with his dream wings. Whereas in reality, he's trapped in this nightmarish, bureaucratic, gray, drab, horribly controlled society where you have these central services, for example, that controls what uh, basically everyone's technology and they're the they're the gatekeepers of everything and everything is run on this bureaucratic procedure where everyone needs the per- proper forms in order to do anything. It's, it is quite a nightmarish society in which he's living, so it's not, uh, quite understandable that he would have a dream life which he escapes to, Walter Mitty-like. But what does that ultimately say about the prospect for freedom, the the prospect that this system can ever be overturned? And I think exactly like 1984, we have to turn this question specifically at the ending of the film and what that ending actually offers us. So at the end of the film, uh, well, it depends on which version of this film that you saw. There were, in fact, well, there have been five different cuts, but two two main cuts to, that are worth talking about. The 142-minute version, which is now uh, preserved in, in um, the most of the DVD versions, and uh, also a different cut that was done by the studio uh, as uh, and that was released specifically in the U.S. And it was very much like Blade Runner. For those who don't know, Blade Runner uh, was released originally in this atrocious uh, studio cut version where it ends with something of a happy ending and you don't find out uh, that, uh, that, that uh, Decker is a replicant or anything of that sort. Um, there's there's no allusion to that, and everything ends on sort of a happy note in that ridiculous cut of Blade Runner. Well, there was also a ridiculous cut of Brazil, which I hope you did not watch in preparation for this, and I certainly haven't seen and don't want to see, in which it is never revealed that the ending in which he finally escapes uh, with his love to Brazil or wherever, to sunnier climes, is not real, is not taking place in his head. That, that reveal uh, does not actually happen in this cut it's uh it's, and so the implication is that there really is some sort of overthrow of the ministry of information or whatever that's that's taking place and uh perhaps led by tuttle and uh his his crew that come in at the end so that all of that is real and he really escapes and it's all happening but of course in the real version the gilliam version which of course gilliam fought very very hard to maintain uh, all of that is revealed to be all just taking place in Sam Lowry's head, who has been lobotomized. His girlfriend is dead. Uh, the world is continuing exactly as it was, but he's living his happy little dream life inside his little head. And, of course, this is a horribly, horrifically bleak view and really does go to uphold what Stoppard says there, that this is about the myth of a free man in an unfree society, an unfree world. Of course, Free freedom can't really exist. It can only exist in your head. It can only exist in some dream fantasy never-never land that will never take place in reality. Now, I find that unrelentingly, horrifically bleak, a horrifically bleak, bleak view of the future 
Interestingly enough, if you go to the IMDb message boards about this movie, you'll find some people arguing that, in fact, this is a more optimistic ending than that alternate studio ending where it's all, where it is never revealed to be just taking place in his head. Because all Sam ever wanted was to achieve his dream world. Well, in a sense, he's achieved it. He is now living in his dream world. And he's, yeah, he's a vegetable and he'll never communicate with the outside world, uh, supposedly. But, but... He's happy. He's living in his little dream world. He's got his dream woman. They're they're escaping. They're living in their fantasy land. So he's he's kind of happy. And I suppose that's an interesting way of looking at it. But that really does present to those of us looking at the ways that Brazil is reflective of our post-war on terror or post-9-11 society. Does that leave us in the position where the only happiness we can ever achieve is in our head? To to be living in our fantasy dream world, whereas the mean real world continues to to oppress and control everything. Now, obviously, I'd like to think that that is not the case, but it is, I think, very much, as I say, very much the same question that we're left with at the end of 1984. So, uh, uh, um, Winston learns to love Big, Big Brother, and he's genuinely happy in at the end of the book, or at least as quote-unquote genuinely happy as you can be when you're not really self-conscious of what's happening, but he loves Big Brother and he's well-adjusted to the society he's living in, so basically it seems like both 1984 and Brazil are positing that in the end you can achieve a type of happiness as long as you detach yourself from that reality that's oppressing you, or at least learn to embrace it in some way, whether by getting a lobotomy or getting uh, tortured in room 101 or whatever it may be. Well, I think ultimately that's a horrifically sad ending, and I think that it's obviously a commentary about the type of society that we're, we're heading into in 1985 or that we may already be directly in the midst of in 2015. But again, what does, where does that leave us, those of us free thinkers who really do desire that, that freedom? Ultimately, I guess the question that I have for you, and it's not a question that I have answered because in some ways that's what the entire premise of this podcast series is about, is attempting to answer this question. Is it possible to transcend, is it possible to have an ending like this? Is it possible to depict a world like this in which it is an unfree world, in which the only freedom that you can ever attain is in your head? Is it possible to depict that as a type of warning that can steer us away from that society? Or is it inevitable that that type of warning will only be a type of predictive programming? Will it only ever set us up to think, well, there's nothing we can do to escape the system, so we might as well enjoy it while we're in it? And if that is the case, then I would say that that uh, films like this, no matter how much they satirize, no matter how much they make fun of that bureaucratic controlled society, then they are ultimately still not worth engaging with, not worth taking on board mentally, because ultimately they do present no way out. However, there is the exact opposite conclusion that one can come to, that these types of movies are wonderful for poking holes in the edifice of these control structures, to laugh at them, to satirize them, to show them for the, the, the ridiculous bumbling buffoonery that they are, so that we can laugh at them and laugh them out of existence and avoid these types of things. 
Well, I think there is an argument to be made on either side, although at this point in time, I would say the argument that these types of movies are not helpful in that regard has more weight, if for no other reason than, as Gilliam himself admits, reality has really come to take the place of the satire that he thought he was making in Brazil two decades ago. Uh, three decades ago, sorry, how time flies. Uh, and we've really seen the in, the institution of a lot of these ideas that were just so out there and bizarre at the time. So these types of warnings that we all understand as warnings, I mean, everyone knows that 1984 is a warning of a nightmare society. Everyone knows that Brazil is a, a ridiculous society that we don't want to live in, and yet we continue to edge closer and closer to that society. So I guess the question of this podcast and the question of this whole podcast series in general is, is there a way to depict this type of nightmarish society and the type of society that we don't want without falling into the trap of normalizing people to it, simply beating them down and getting them to think at some level, subconsciously or whatever, the way people ingest this type of media, to simply think that, well, there's nothing that we can do. The myth of the free man in an unfree world. Again, I say this is an open question and one that I want your input into, so let's Let's take this on board, and let's let. I, I'm I'm very curious as to your reactions out there. What? How did you take the ending of this movie? What did you think the ultimate message of this movie was? And perhaps I am just overanalyzing it by half, as usual. And maybe we should just enjoy it for the enjoyable movie that it undoubtedly is. It is an enjoyable movie. There are humorous parts of it, and uh, it does present a, a visually interesting and, uh, I, I think, uh, satirically interesting take on government bureaucracy and and uh, and control run amok uh, during this, this potentially fake terror spree. So, for those reasons alone, I think it is enjoyable in various ways. But is it is it worth it? Is it is it productive? Does it actually lead us anywhere anywhere we actually want to be. So I will leave it open to all of you out there to answer that question, to talk about that question. What do you think? And as always, of course, Corbett Report members can uh, can leave their comments on the Corbett Report homepage itself on this post to join that discussion. Speaking of the comments at CorbettReport.com, let's go through the comments from last month's edition of this, or two months ago's edition of this podcast, Pink Cadillac. And as always, let's just take a look at some of the highlights from that. Of course, we had user Jay Grutzik, who uh, wrote that uh, uh, another mind-blowing show. Thanks for the info. He said, I had an idea. It seems to me that popular media has been a kind of barometer in the past. I wonder if it might work as a predictor now. Do you know of anyone that watches current TV in the U.S. scanning for clues pointing to possible future events? Well, that's a very good question. And yes, a lot of people have looked at various series uh, that are going on to try to think about what the next false flag might be. But again, like so many other aspects of this, I see a lot of the value in these tools of ex analysis uh, being demonstrated when we go back and look at things in the past and see how they connect to various events. I have yet to see anyone accurately predict any sort of event from a TV series or a movie or what have you. Now, I'm not saying that this is an unfruitful endeavor, but it does, it, it is interesting that I don't, I certainly don't think that it's going to ever be that obvious or that, um, that people are going to be able to sort out the, the, the one or two pieces of information that are valuable from all the other pieces of background noise. Again, we could have watched the lone pilot gunman back in 2001 when it was aired on TV for the first time and 
then said, oh, look, they're going to do some sort of false flag event where they run planes into the World Trade Center. We could have, but no one did because no one, again, is going to be able to see that that is a particular plan that's going to be enacted. And uh, maybe, maybe I'm open to the possibility not even the creators of that program had any idea that that was going to be something that would actually be enacted, which brings up the question once again, as comes up a lot on this uh, in this series, what, what ultimately is the, the ultimate, what is actually taking place? What is happening with regards to this predictive programming? And on that note, Greg left a comment on last month's uh, edition saying, James, you offer two possibilities for the inclusion of right-wing militia groups being included into Pink Cadillac. One, predictive programming based on foreknowledge of actual movements, but fall back to this, po the possibility that it is a uh, Two, more general meme finding its way into Hollywood scripts as a reflection of modern society. Using 9-11 as a case study, one that your viewers are more likely to be familiar with, could you come to the same conclusion or more astutely a lack thereof? You've talked about Neo's passport expiring on 9-11, the lone gunman pilot episode, and then there are the more abstract examples like the pairing of ideas as seen in this SNL skit, and there's a link to a YouTube video. Using Illuminati symbolism as an example, maybe it proliferates in modern pop culture as a reflection of our times. But using 9-11 as an example, if all the earrings took place prior to the event, it could only be seen as predicted programming based on specific foreknowledge or mere coincidence. Well, yes, I think that's an interesting distinction because there are certain things like Neo's passport expiring on 9-11-2001 or uh, the Lone Gunman pilot episode that are so specific that either they are just total 100% amazing coincidence or they were inserted very deliberately. And again, that's, an, that's a fascinating thing to look at in and of itself. But what about these general ideas? Something like right-wing militia groups being crazy is certainly something that can be included uh, without any specific knowledge of any specific event. It's just something that's in the ether, as it were. In the same way that uh, Brazil, I mean, I don't think there was any inside information about what was going to happen in the phony war on terror. It's just taking the sort of the idea of a terror campaign in a bureaucratic society to its logical conclusions or illogical conclusions, I suppose you could say. So I think there are at least a couple of different ways that this operates. But again, I'm would be interested to hear other people's take on this and uh, their, how, what, how they sort through these different types of pieces of predictive programming and the way that filters through in society generally. And perhaps another example provided once again in the comment section of last month's uh, podcast by Double K321, who writes uh, predictive programming on TV show Barney Miller back in 1981 with a link to a Barney Miller episode where there's someone being uh, arrested who's causing disturbance, talking about the Trilateral Commission and the New World Order. Um, again, this was on TV in 1981, and Again, I wouldn't say that that was a, a predictive programming per se, uh, other than perhaps to make it look like anyone who talks about these issues is crazy because they knew more people would be talking about them. But we'd already had by that point, we'd had various researchers talking about the trilaterals, uh, Anthony Sudden and Patrick Wood and, uh, and uh, 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 Barry Goldwater, of course, had also talked about the, the trilateral commission. So it wasn't exactly unknown knowledge at that time, just generally unknown to the general public, but there had been others talking about it. So perhaps, again, the writers just picked up on an idea that they had heard somewhere and thought, well, that sounds crazy. Let's make a crazy person spout this stuff. So again, it's not necessarily, I don't think that every single instance of this type of thing is a 
deliberate plot by the Illuminati to predict our future, but I think it is interesting the way that these ideas get picked up on. Again, these are the types of discussions that go on at CorbettReport.com. I hope you will sign up for a membership if you haven't yet done so, so you can join the conversation. And that's going to be it for this month. Once again, I hope you did enjoy watching Brazil, 1985's Brazil, uh, more so than some of the other movies in the past that we've covered as Fosca notes in the uh, comments for last month. Uh, really looking forward to the coming FLNW on the brilliant B- Brazil, finally a movie really worth watching. Well, on that note, I hope, I intend, I plan to give you a homework assignment that will also be pleasurable this month. And this month's homework assignment is going to be mercifully short for those of you who have troubles keeping up with the various novels and uh, and feature-length movies that we cover here habitually on the podcast. Well, next month we're going to be talking about a short story, a very short short story that's uh, readable certainly in one sitting. So you're in luck. You won't take very much preparation at all, but it will take an awful lot of mental preparation to think about the ramifications of this story. I am talking about a story by Jorge Luis Borges, the absolutely incomparable short story slash uh, short fiction, fictional essay writer. It's difficult to describe what he wrote. And for those of you who know Borges, you'll know what that's about. Uh, he, uh, his best known English anthology is Labyrinths, Selected Stories and Other Writings. And within that, there is a story entitled The Library of Babel. And we are going to be talking about that next month. So please get your thinking caps on. You're going to need them for this. I will, of course, include a link to the story in the show notes so you can get prepared. And I'm looking forward to talking to you then. Once again, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for your patience while I got this episode prepared and looking forward to talking to you again next month.